This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. are listening to the Voices of Wrestling podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. X out, go listen to some boring podcast where they're afraid of their own shadow. Okay? Don't listen to Joe Lanza. Because Joe Lanza's not changing. And Rich Crage. Give me a name. Like Who delivers this guy in a big spot? Joe, don't yell at me. Like in, in the big spot. Who delivers better than this guy? Stop yelling at me. I agree. Welcome back to the best wrestling podcast in the world it is of course the voice of the wrestling flagship podcast i am of course your host the most compelling voice in wrestling media the martin scorsese of three ways joe lanza flying solo once again no big deal we've got a big show planned for you actually that's a lie i i don't have a big show planned for you i do not have a tall paul planned for you um there's just not much going on this week I'm struggling to come up with topics, and as any podcast host worth their salt will tell you, when you are bereft of topics and you don't know where to turn, you can always turn to listener questions. That's what we're going to start with today. I farmed, I crowdsourced. Some tremendous listener questions from some of our top listeners. Top secret email went out to only the top listeners of the Voices Wrestling flagship. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm looking at some of the questions. These listeners did a tremendous job. These are some of our most valued listeners. And uh, these are the uh, 100% real questions that these listeners sent in that they wanted me to answer on this week's. Uh, tremendous Voice Wrestling flagship podcast. Why waste any time? Let's get right into them. These are some of the hottest topics in wrestling. So there's no reason not to dig right in and uh, and take care of business. So uh, first question here is from Stephen C. Truitt. And he wants to know, uh, he says here, Joe, where do you think Bray Wyatt is going to land? AEW, Impact Wrestling, somewhere else. Thank you for your time and see ya. Uh, Here's the interesting thing about that, Stephen. I I think that FKA Bray Wyatt, as we'll refer to him here, because let's face it, he's not going to be Bray Wyatt anymore unless he goes back to WWE, which I guess we can't completely take off the table, although... With some of the cryptic social media messages that that Bray Wyatt is putting out there, uh, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Um, the interesting thing about this is, and and I don't know anything. I haven't spoken to any of the principals, but just what I know about the people involved, the people making the hiring decisions, uh, Bray Wyatt himself. My gut is telling me that he would prefer to be with AEW. Now, I mean, who wouldn't? It's a red-hot product. It's competing neck-and-neck. Dynamite is with Monday Night Raw. Uh, 
on a weekly basis now. Um, there's nothing but good things coming out of that locker room, you know, from the talent. And I am sure that he has heard some things from his friends in that locker room. It's the place to be. It's the place you want to be. It's the hot spot. I mean, CM Punk came out of a seven-year hibernation to to return to wrestling, and he picked AEW, and he could have picked uh, anywhere in the world. Brian Danielson left a very secure spot uh, in a company that he has no ill will towards to come to AEW. Adam Cole turned down a promotion to WWE's main roster and chose to come to AEW. It is the hot place to be. It is a hot television product. Uh, The shows are electric because of the hot crowds. So I'm sure if Bray Wyatt had his way, he would be in AEW already. What I suspect is happening here is AEW isn't open to some of his zanier ideas. And that could be part of the impasse here. And it could also be a situation. And again, I'm not speaking for anyone. I have no insider knowledge on this one. I haven't discussed it with anybody. Um, of course, this totally legit leader, uh, listener question. I didn't know what questions I was going to get from these very real listeners that sent me these questions this week. So I didn't do any homework. I wasn't able to do any homework on these questions. But it could also be a situation where, you know, maybe Tony Khan doesn't have a ton of interest in this guy. Now, um, I remember Rich and I questioned, or, or more specifically, I shouldn't throw Rich under the bus. I questioned uh, whether or not this guy was the merchandise pusher that people claim he is because um, he's not that great in the ring. He never really made a noticeable difference on ratings. Uh, I, I didn't see him as any kind of needle mover in any way whenever he would you know, move between brands or whatnot. So I questioned whether this reputation of being a great merchandise mover was legitimate or just shit people say. Well, uh, I did receive a message the week of that show from a source that I absolutely trust implicitly that would that that would give me solid information on this and someone who would know uh, because of their connections. And it turns out that that is absolutely true that Bray Wyatt was a top merchandise pusher in WWE. So I have to take an L on that one for questioning that. Uh, I was wrong about that. So uh, where maybe Tony Khan doesn't see much upside in terms of uh, uh, Bray Wyatt working a version of one of the characters that he worked in WWE or having some other zany idea that maybe wouldn't fit into AEW's universe... He is a businessman, and this is a a popular wrestler to a certain segment of wrestling fans. They were chanting his name in Rochester this past week on Dynamite, expecting him to be there as part of the Brody Lee tribute. There were some chants for his name. It wasn't deafening. It wasn't all, I don't know how many people they drew, um, uh, 7,000 people in the, or however many people. I don't know how many people were there. Uh, Don't come at me. You know that I'm being paid by AEW if it was only 5,000. I don't know how many people were in the building. It wasn't the entire building chanting, making these chants, but there was a certain segment of the fans there uh, chanting for Bray Wyatt, wanting or expecting him to be there. So uh, no matter how I feel about Wyndham Rotunda, uh, maybe there is some value there, but at the same time, maybe Tony Khan recognizes that uh, even though he's popular to a certain segment 
of the wrestling fandom that he's just not a good fit for his company. And I firmly believe that if Wyndham Rotunda has wacky ideas and wants to do magic and sorcery and all this, you know, and even without the magic and sorcery, even if he just wants to be a guy who, you know, does creepy promos and, and puts Easter eggs inside of his promos and and does all this uh, this layered storytelling that, you know, because he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and he's a, you know, fart sniffer that, that he thinks is brilliant. Maybe Tony Khan is just like, I don't, I'm not into this. It doesn't fit what I'm doing. We let Matt Hardy teleport once. It was the biggest mistake I ever made. I don't want to go down that road again. You know, that that could be the thought process. So, um, you know, would it stun me if he pops up in AEW? It wouldn't. Would I, if he does, do I think he's going to do some, uh, you know, over-the-top character work like he was doing in WWE? I don't. Well, if that's the case, then what's his value? And at that point, what you know, what's what's his value then? If that doesn't fit what you do in your company and you don't want him doing that, then why bring him in to begin with? You're going to bring him in to trade top wrist locks with Brian Danielson? I mean, that's not it, that's not what this guy does. That's not the value he brings to the table. So I think he would want to be there. I think any wrestler would want to be there. But I'm not sure the feeling's mutual. And if it is mutual, I don't I'm not sure that they want to do the things that he wants to do. I'm not sold on the idea that all of his ideas were great and it was that dastardly Vince McMahon who had all of the bad ideas concerning The Fiend and the Firefly Funhouse. I'm not sold on that. I mean, this idea that, you know, uh, Bray Wyatt and the Firefly Funhouse and The Fiend and the split personality was this tremendous great pro wrestling story until Vince McMahon got his hands on it um, is utter nonsense to me. I mean, it was based on, you know, Bray Wyatt having his imaginary alter egos as fucking puppets in an imaginary children's show playhouse. I mean, this wasn't exactly 1970s AWA to begin with. Even before Vince McMahon allegedly ruined it. It was still silly. It was still nonsensical. Um, And it was the kind of thing that, you know, a certain portion of the pro wrestling fan base enjoys that kind of of storytelling or whatever you want to call it, but um, it, 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 there's also another portion of the pro wrestling fan base that's very put off by stuff like that. It's one step removed from Lily. Um, so I don't buy this idea that all of the good ideas were Bray Wyatt, but um, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear him explain himself. If I had an opportunity to ask Bray Wyatt, I would say, um, you know, hey, Bray, was, uh, was the giant mallet... And, and and the fact that you were that the fiend was a serial killer was any of that your idea? And if his answer was, well, uh, some of it was, but well, okay, well, we're done here. I'm not concerned with what Vince added or subtracted from it. I mean, if these are your core ideas, okay, let me ask you this, Bray: Was uh, uh, doing cinematic matches and having Braun Strowman get eaten by an alligator was that your idea? Well, not totally, but well, then we're done here. I'm, I'm not interested in your explanation. I mean, it's it just the whole basis of this is stupidity. You know, I, so, I, you know, no matter what Vince added or took away from it, 
you know, the basic, and even going back to the Hawaiian shirt, Bray Wyatt, I would ask Bray directly. I'd say, was Sister Abigail your idea? The idea of Sister Abigail and, uh, you know, the match that never happened against Finn Balor, where he was going to be the demon. You were going to be dressed up like your dead sister or your mother or whatever the fuck that was going to be. Did you have anything to do with that? Were your fingerprints on that at all? Well, yes, yeah, some of it, but well, okay, we're done here. It's very clear this guy thinks he's some kind of master storyteller and he has these zany ideas, and I'm just not sure that they jive with what AEW does. So, um, to answer your question, Stephen, I, I think that uh, he probably wants to be there. That's what's taking so long for him to find a destination because I don't know if these two sides are on the same page creatively. And I really believe that his best fit would be Impact Wrestling. Why would his best fit be Impact Wrestling? Because they have the Undead Realm. They have Rosemary. And they have Sammy Callahan, who teleports. And they have, uh, you know, zaniness is accepted in Impact Wrestling. And it's part of Impact Wrestling's universe. And, and, and uh, characters similar to Bray Wyatt, the cult leader, or even the Fiend, or the Firefly Funhouse version of Bray, would fit right in in Impact. It wouldn't break that universe the way it would AEW's. Can they pay him the kind of money he wants to make? I'm sure he made a shit ton of money in WWE. We know AEW can pay that kind of money. Can Impact pay that kind of money? Probably not. Is creative fulfillment more important to him? Does he maybe not have any other options on the table? Because, again, AEW may not want him to begin with. Would Ring of Honor want him? They can pay him. And they've got Roosh and Roosh's entire family and PCO coming off the books. So they could pay they could pay Wyndham Rotunda. Would he fit in with Ring of Honor? Would it matter? Could they use any kind of jolt an injection of star power that they can get? I would argue yes. But, you know, can you picture him getting in there with, you know, Josh Woods and having a pure match? I mean I can't. He doesn't really fit Ring of Honor. But again, they could use any sort of star power injection they can get. So, I don't know. I just don't see AEW as a fit. And I think maybe AEW doesn't see him as a fit. And, uh, you know, if he's not going to be able to do his zany shit and his avant-garde ideas aren't going to come through, then what what value does he bring to the table? Now he's just Husky Harris at this point. So, uh, thank you for the question. And we're going to stick with Impact. This question is from, uh, this guy I guess wants to kayfabe himself. Uh, someone who just calls himself the Big Dog. D-A-W-G. And he wants to know, his question is, Joe, what do you think about the new Impact Digital Media Championship? Another good question. I told you that these were good questions. These are our best listeners. Um. For those of you that do not know, Impact rolled out a new championship, the Digital Media Championship. My top secret inside sources that you'll never be able to figure out tell me that um, the uh, tournament for this championship is going to run on Impact Plus and the Ultimate uh, Insider Ultimate gimmick on YouTube. 
And then uh, eventually those matches will be posted uh, outside of the paywall for all to see uh, within 24 hours or so. And then the, with the working assumption that the future title matches will either be on Impact Plus or or uh, or somewhere on the digital side, obviously based on the name of the title. So um, that's what the title is. On the Impact Wrestling Twitter feed, they posted a uh, 40, was about a 40 second video, I guess, 30 second video with uh, just some shots of wrestlers. But what's interesting is there are male and female wrestlers in the in the highlights here, the highlight package, uh, hyping up this new championship. There's a picture of the title itself, which is getting uh, decent reviews for uh, how the title uh, looks. I'm not big into caring what title belts look like, but it seems like people think that this one's a good-looking title. What do I think of the Impact Digital Media Championship? Well, um... One idea that I had kicked around, and I may have brought it up on the paywall once or twice, maybe even here in this space, was for AEW to do something like this with Dark and Dark Elevation, uh, just to give a little bit of purpose and direction to you know some of those matches that they air on YouTube. Maybe do some sort of uh, you know YouTube title, or um, uh, not necessarily called a YouTube title, or what Impact is doing here with their Digital Media Championship. Uh, it didn't have to be that on the nose. You can call it whatever you want, but sort of a true secondary title because they don't consider the TNT title a secondary title, which is strictly defended and dealt with on YouTube. You don't bring it to the television shows or you rarely bring it to the television shows. And it's truly fought over by the mid-carders and even the lower mid-carders. And it maybe just gives a little bit of direction and purpose to Dark and Dark Elevation. Right? Uh, they do storylines on Dark and Dark Elevation. You know, Diamante and, and Swole just had their big blow-off match a couple of weeks ago. And we saw, um, you know, going back probably about a year, we saw Brandon Cutler and Peter Avalon have a feud on YouTube. And, and um you know, on, on one of the first Dark Elevations, we saw the Matt Seidel, Kenny Omega angle kick off on YouTube. So they do do angles on those shows. But I always thought that maybe adding a title to the mix would maybe funnel more fans to those shows and just give those shows a little more focus and whatnot. But uh, it seems like Impact has beat them to the punch or uh, on, on this sort of idea. And I think it's a it's a good idea. The problem I have with the Impact Digital Media Championship is it appears it's going to be intergender. Therefore, I have zero interest. That sucks all of my interest out of it. This is not 2016. I thought we were beyond this bullshit. Um, look, again, this kind of bleeds back into the, the Bray Wyatt question that we had earlier. Impact throws everything up against the wall. And here's the thing, and I've always said this about Impact regarding their intergender stuff, especially when, you know, Tessa Blanchard was their world champion and, and, and all of that. I don't mind that Impact does intergender. They have to do anything to set themselves apart. So if that means doing supernatural shit like the Undead Realm or doing intergender or having an intergender title or having all of your titles be intergender, uh, you know, that's fine. It doesn't have to be for me. You know, uh, I don't have this enormous ego where I think every wrestling company has to be for me. I mean, there's people out there who genuinely enjoy Choco Pro and think it's good. Good for them. 
I mean, you couldn't tape me to a chair and remove my eyelids to get me to watch that. I mean, it's awful. But, you know, there's, uh, there's people who, who are into it, and that's great. You know, and, and I don't have to be into intergender, but I don't have to go out and rally against it either. I, I don't have anything against intergender existing. I just personally have very little interest in intergender pro wrestling. If I'm watching a show and there's an intergender match, I'm not going to you know turn my head like I'm a baby who doesn't want to eat his peas. I'm going to watch it. You know, I'm just—it's just not my one of my preferred styles of wrestling. So, as a result, uh, no, I'm not going to watch Tennille Dashwood and uh, Falaba wrestle over the uh, Digital Media Championship. I'm just not going to do that. Now, if you want to make it a women's title, if you want to make it a men's title, all right, I'll check it out. I'll get into it. But intergender, just not my thing. Therefore, uh, big dog, I have no interest in the Impact Digital Media Championship. Even if I think it's a neat little idea now, uh, look, I don't know how many people – I mean how many people have Impact Plus? How many people talk about the content on Impact Plus? Now, that's the goal of something like this, to get people interested in Impact Plus so they pay for it. You know, uh, Similar to my idea for AEW doing a title like this. The goal is to get people to watch those YouTube shows, not just the, the AEW sickos who are the only people watching those things. You know, try to – you know. Get a more you know, a wider audience into it. So that's the idea here. I can't kill him for trying it. Um, you know, do I think anybody will be talking about this title in six months? No, I do not. Next question. Uh, William Thompson from Chicago, Illinois, wants to know, uh, Joe, what do you think of Joe Gacy's new character in NXT 2.0? And as a follow-up, if you don't mind, do you think Joe Gacy is the best wrestler in the world? Okay, wow. That First of all, the second part of that question, no. I do not think that Joe Gacy is currently or was ever the best wrestler in the world. That's absurd, William Thompson. What a crazy question. Nobody could possibly think that. Man, maybe I should have just thrown this listener question out. But let's deal with the first half of it, shall we? He wants to know what I think of Joe Gacy's new character. In NXT 2.0. And if you're not familiar with Joe Casey's new gimmick in NXT 2.0, he is doing a gimmick that has failed every time any wrestling promotion has tried it, including the aforementioned Impact Wrestling when they attempted it with the uh, pre-canceled Joey Ryan. Ironically enough, uh, Joey Ryan's uh, faction or unit or whatnot was called Cancel Culture in Impact, foreshadowing what was to happen to him. Uh, Joe Gacy is doing a character that talks about safe spaces and uh, and cancel culture and and uh, and and all of those uh, buzzwords that uh, everybody is pretty tired of at this point and um, something that probably uh, well probably wouldn't have worked but maybe would have worked better in like 2015 when you know uh, every week there was a new college campus controversy over safe spaces and professors getting fired or whatnot, but people quickly grew tired of those types of stories. Uh, The gimmick not only feels dated, but it touches on subject matter that uh, wrestling fans just have not been receptive to in any way, shape, or form anytime anybody tries it. So um, I don't know. I don't think this thing's going to work. They even worked having the Joe Gacy character get literally canceled where they debuted the gimmick. And then had it pulled from all social media. That was all a work. 
He came on TV the next week and talked about how it was all pulled from social media. So they're really going all the way with it and giving it an honest go. I just don't think it's going to work. And it leads me to a broader topic here. And that's, I feel like there's a segment of wrestling fans, and I don't know how large the segment is. It's something I'm trying to put my finger on, that we are in an era where people want their baby faces to be rooted in reality, and people they can relate to, and realistic, like John Moxley. John Moxley is not a cartoon character, right? John Moxley is just a guy. He loves his wife. He likes to beat people up, and uh, you know he's maybe a little unstable, right? A little unbalanced, but he really just wants to get in there and fight. And I think we've all known a John Moxley at some point in our lives. We all have that one friend who's just a little crazy. But you know what? If you get into some into some trouble in a bar at 1.30 in the morning, that's the guy you want to be hanging out with. He's reality-based. You know, uh, Hangman Page has gotten over because he's the anxious millennial. And that connects with a lot of anxious millennials. Every millennial, you know, swears they're depressed and their life is terrible. They relate to Hangman Page. Who may or may not have a problem with the drink. To cover up his insecurities and the issues he has. Right? So we're kind of in an era where people want relatable baby faces. Tetsuya Naito is another example. Now he's relatable to a generation of Japanese wrestling fans. So, but on the flip side, I notice that people don't want heels rooted in reality. They want their heels to be cartoonish. I mean, think about this for a second. Okay? Uh, People don't want heels that hit too close to home or fly too close to the sun. They want that in their baby faces, but they don't want it in their heels. Dan Lambert said the word snowflake a few weeks ago, and people lost their fucking minds, and they never, and they, and they still haven't recovered. All because he said snowflake once about a month ago. You know, and, and he's supposed to be an out-of-date boomer. Who uses shitty dated buzzwords. And you're supposed to not like them. But there's a segment of the modern fan that doesn't want that. It used to be in pro wrestling that that heels for decades. For decades. Heels wanted you to hate them. They wanted you to see them in the grocery store. or, Or walking down the street. And curse them. Because you had real vitriolic hate for these people. Because of the actions and their words. But it's not that way anymore. That's bad kind of that's bad kind of heat now with the modern fan. I need a sip of water. I'm not gonna edit this, even though I'm on a roll. What the modern wrestling fan, at least a certain segment of the modern wrestling fan wants, okay? They want to like the heels. They want to like who they think the heels are. And they want to pretend to hate them. That's the difference now. So when Dan Lambert, when the boomer comes out and says Snowflake, okay, they don't like that. Because they're not sure if that's really Dan Lambert or not. Instead of just 
allowing themselves to hate this guy, this heel, who they're not supposed to like. They're not sure if they can trust this character. Now, wait a minute. Does Dan Lambert really think I'm a snowflake? Because that I can't deal with. I have to be able to like Dan Lambert, but hate the Dan Lambert character. Otherwise, I'm uncomfortable. That's the difference with the modern fan, or at least a certain segment of the modern fan. Which is why this Joe Gacy thing isn't going to work. Okay? Because it just, it flies too close to the sun. It hits too close to home. People who are constantly getting harassed about safe spaces and cancel culture or having to read about it in the news or see it on Twitter or whatever don't want to deal with that when they're watching pro wrestling. They just don't. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm just telling you that that's how they feel and why these kinds of gimmicks never get over or never seem to get over. And why Dan Lambert started off super hot. Now he's still hot and he's still getting great reactions. But there is no doubt a certain segment of the AEW fan base who wants nothing to do with Dan Lambert anymore. And it all started when he said the word snowflake. You can trace it right back to that point. So, no, the Joe Gacy thing has no chance. It's not going to work. The thing about it, though, is it's WWE. So it doesn't really matter if it works or not. Two coughs. Listen, I'm losing my voice. The problem here is I've done about a million hours of audio over the last two weeks, and my voice is just paying the price. My wife was telling me before. She's like, listen, you you can't do this. Fla-. I'm like, I have to do the What do you mean I can't do the flagship? I don't have a choice. I work hard. So I rested my voice a little. And here we go. But I'm starting to struggle, and it's only segment one. Um, what was I saying? It's WWE, so they're just going to plow forward. It doesn't make a difference. Whereas in other promotions, if something wasn't working or failing, they would cut bait on it. But as we've seen in WWE, it won't matter. I mean, so it's not going to work, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to plow forward with it. But it's just an interesting psychological thing that I've seen with, with the modern fan. And, I, and I, what I can't pin down is what percentage of the modern fan doesn't want to be worked and doesn't truly want to hate the heels. I don't know if it's a majority I don't know if it's a small vocal minority. That I haven't pinned down, but I know it exists. They want real baby faces that they can relate to. They want cartoon heels. They don't want to really hate people. You know, they just, they don't. And, um, you know, and, and that's a drastic change from how pro wrestling was for decades. And I think if I were a pro wrestler today, um, I don't know if I'd go for that old school heat because I just I'm not sure it works with a chunk of the modern fan base. And you know, as a pro wrestler, I'd want to try to get over and appeal to as many fans as possible, obviously. So uh you know, in terms of being a heel, maybe the you know, and I think, you know, and we we we've seen it with Max Caster and MJF too to some extent. Okay? Max Caster with, you know, talking about Duke Lacrosse and Simone Biles. Uh, he just flew too close to the sun with that. And there were some fans, percentage, uh, you know, up to you, indeterminate number of fans, who just weren't having that shit. 
It was too real. It was too real. MJF, every time he talks about methany or, you know, this week, talking about, uh, you know, Darby Allen's uncle dying in the uh, drunken car crash or, you know, many other things, many other promos that MJF has done. There's always a certain segment of the fans who just, it's, it, they think he has gone too far. But I think he largely gets away with things that people like Max Caster and, uh, and maybe Dan Lambert don't because he's more cartoonish. He wears his scarf. He's so over the top that people know that it's just a, you know, so I think that's where uh, MJF can can walk that line and get away with things that maybe others can't. But um, I've gotten a little off the beaten track. The point here is the new Joe Gacy character, it's not going to work, but it's WWE, so it might not be going anywhere. Next question comes from Jimmy Altieri. Jimmy Altieri wants to know, uh, Joe, can you talk about the breaking news that was revealed this week that Tony Khan is the sole booker of AEW and the EVPs have no power when it comes to hiring wrestlers or booking the storylines? Uh, you know, that's interesting, Jimmy, because that story did quote unquote break this week, and I don't understand how it was news. I mean, no offense to Cassidy Haynes, uh, the person who reported it, and, and and the work that he put into the story, which I'm sure he did. But who is this exactly news to? I mean, it's been pretty widely known that Tony Khan is the booker. I mean, he's the big seat. I mean, we've talked about it for almost two years now on the Thursday TV reviews behind the paywall. That December 2019 Dynamite that ended the year with the awful Dark Order angle was pretty much the final straw. And that's when Tony Khan put his foot down and uh, took over the reins and started saying no. And we talked about that at the time. So you can really pinpoint January 2020 if you want to be specific. And we're coming up on the two-year mark of Tony Khan being the sole booker of AEW. How do I know that? I mean, that's you know, I was told that directly. How does everybody else know that? Because Tony Khan says it all the time. Again, this is not top secret information or breaking news, and I have no idea why this made the rounds as news this week. Everybody knows that Tony Khan is the booker. He has said directly in media scrums, in press conferences, in media calls, I am the booker. That Those words have come out of his mouth. We've known that this wasn't a collective for almost two years now. So I have no idea how this is uh, how this was news to people. And there were people responding to this news. I, I, oh, wow, I can't believe it. Do these people live on fucking Mars? I mean, I, you know, this isn't even a secret anymore at this point. I used to talk about it in hushed tones behind the paywall. But then Tony Khan just made it public a long time ago. That he's running shit. He's the booker. If it's bad, blame him. If it's good, praise him. He, you know, not that he doesn't take ideas. But he's the final say. And quite honestly, I think it's how it should be. I don't think booking committees and writing teams, I don't believe in any of that shit. 
You need a supreme commander at the top. Not the fucking Dave Clark 5. Our next question. Uh, Another question about bookers. This one coming from Jimmy Bowers. Jimmy Bowers wants to know, uh, Joe, what do you make of Jim Cornette's kindler, gentler stance towards AEW lately? You know, I got to tell you, I think some of this is a little overblown. Jim Cornette thanked Tony Khan for the nice words he had to say and the tributes he did for Bobby Eaton when he passed away last month. And Jim Cornette has praised some of the segments on Dynamite. He praised the CM Punk debut and said that it was so good that it's uh, nothing he would have booked himself. It was actually better than anything he would have booked himself. So very high praise for how they debuted CM Punk. Very high praise for the Brian Danielson-Kenny Omega match on Dynamite a couple of weeks ago and that entire episode of television. Um, So there have been some things that Jim Cornette has praised lately when it comes to AEW, but he's still burying plenty of it too. He still has massive problems with Kenny Omega. He very badly... um, you know, he basically he praised Kenny Omega through gritted teeth when he talked about the match with Brian Danielson and really uh, uh, credited Danielson more than Omega and really implied that Omega was kind of just along for the ride. Um, he still has negative things to say about other people on the roster and, and some of Tony Khan's uh, booking rhythms. So it's not as if Jim Cornette is a AEW flag waver at this point, but... He's been praising it enough that it's been notable, and it's been notable to a lot of his listeners and his minions and his followers and the cult of Cornette uh, to the point where some of them have turned on Jim. That is happening. Um, But what I think is happening here is I think Tony Khan's long-term, I don't want to call it necessarily a strategy because I don't want to imply that he's been disingenuous, but if you notice, Tony Khan has never fired back at Jim Cornette. No matter how nasty or mean that Jim Cornette uh, would get towards AEW or even Tony Khan personally and his booking or or uh, or, or you know uh, anything else that might be a bit more personal than the product he's putting on the screen, Tony Khan has always simply killed Jim Cornette with kindness. Anytime Jim Cornette's name has come up, Tony Khan would praise Jim Cornette. Say he's one of the smartest minds in wrestling. He, he, he often says he's learned more from listening to Jim Cornette than listening to anyone else in wrestling. Uh, he, would say, he would say things like, uh, even though I disagree with Jim, Jim's entitled to his opinion and, 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 and I respect Jim. He kills Jim Cornette with kindness. He has never lowered himself to Jim Cornette's level. He's never gotten himself into some... Uh, what what would be a worthless war of words or feud or any of this nonsense, which would greatly benefit Jim and his podcast. And I'm sure Tony knows that. And I'm sure privately Tony has grumbled about Jim Cornette plenty, especially since he has plenty of people to grumble to, since there's plenty of people in his close personal space and in his company who loathe and strongly dislike Jim Cornette. Okay. Uh, but publicly has always Killed Jim Cornette with kindness. And I'm not suggesting that that's the reason that Jim Cornette has all of a sudden uh, been more apt to praise Tony Khan 
or praise AEW. But just psychologically, because this is how people work, okay? If you are burying someone and attacking them and criticizing them nonstop for two and a half years and uh, telling the entire world how stupid you think they are in terms of how they handle, uh, in terms of how they run their business and how they book their wrestling company, and that person just consistently says nice and, and good things about you and kills you with kindness, okay? It is inevitable that that is going to take the edge off of you to some degree. Unless you are a sociopath. Unless you are a complete sociopath, that's going to take the edge off to some degree. And I think whether, again, I hesitate to use the word strategy. But I believe that Tony Khan killing Jim Cornette with kindness is beginning to pay off. Because if Tony Khan had hurled himself in the mud with Jim and gotten involved in the muck and was in some kind of public feud with him, Jim would be less apt to praise the things that he has enjoyed about AEW lately or wouldn't have praised them as much and would be far more harsh on the things that he doesn't like. But killing him with kindness has taken the edge off to some degree. It has worked. It has worked. And it allows Jim to be a bit more honest when he does like something that happens in the company. Now, I'm not one of these people that think Jim is is just been completely honest in his critiques. I think Jim plays to his crowd. Do I think Jim secretly is an AEW fan? Do I think Jim secretly likes the things he critiques? Do I think he secretly thinks Kenny Omega is a great wrestler? No, I think Jim Cornette hates the things he says he hates. Do I think he plays it up as a performance? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I think he turns it up a notch? I do. Because he's an entertainer and he's doing a podcast. When Joe Lanza comes on this podcast, you're not getting... I I hate to pull the curtain back. But we're all performing to a degree. You're not getting the same Joe Lanza that sits down at the dinner table with his wife. It's a very similar facsimile. But to some degree, I have to perform. That doesn't mean I'm giving dishonest opinions. You're getting a reasonable version of who I am. You're getting a reasonable version of who Jim Cornette is. But does he turn up those critiques because his, because his listeners eat it up? Of course he does. Why do you think AEW is the lead topic on every single podcast he does? It does numbers. His people want to hear him bury it. And the people that don't want to hear him bury it, and the people, there are people who do like it that want to hear uh, how Jim is going to bury the show this week. I'll raise my hand guilty as charged. I want to hear what angle Jim takes to bury things this week as I rudely belch into the microphone again. I'm really struggling. But I do think Tony Khan has taken the edge off of Jim to some degree. And I also think that Jim is smart enough to see that this thing really is working now. And it is a success. And it's going to be a success moving forward. And he can't just completely bash it anymore while still retaining any credibility. You just can't. And Jim is smart enough to know that, you know, Maybe he does need to praise the things he likes a little bit harder that he's seeing on the show. Maybe he does need to 
cool it on, you know, they're going to fold in six months. Because it's obvious that that's not going to happen. And it's obvious that this thing is here to stay unless there's a tragedy. So, um, that's what I think is going on with Jim Cornette and his sudden praise for certain things AEW. And those were very real listener-submitted questions. Got us off to a good start here. Got us through the first 45 minutes. I will be back with more as we review Extreme Rules. I'll be right back. All right, what do we got here? My bookie. With over $500,000 in contest prize money up for grabs, the NFL is back in action, and so is winning season at MyBookie. Head to MyBookie.ag to choose from a variety of boosts and free bets and get in on the fan-favorite $100,000 Super Contest, which only costs $10 to enter. Pick five games against the spread each week. Each win earns you a point, and each point gets you closer to the grand prize. In order to get you started, make your first deposit at mybookie.ag. Use promo code VOICES to instantly receive double your deposit. That's double your money to double your winnings with your first ever deposit using promo code VOICES. You can bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. All right, so we're going to get to extreme rules in a bit. There's a couple other quick hitters I want to get to. I quickly want to talk about this uh, this controversy. Yet another Dave Meltzer star rating controversy that popped up when Dave gave the Brian Danielson-Kenny Omega Dynamite match from a couple of weeks ago on the 22nd of September. A five-star rating. The big controversy here is this is the first ever five-star rating that Brian Danielson has earned from Dave Meltzer. And people were incensed. Could not believe it. And nobody cares more about Dave Meltzer's star ratings that people than people who don't like Dave Meltzer and who claim they don't care about his star ratings. Those are the people that care the most about Dave Meltzer's star ratings. But I was thinking about this one in particular and how Dave was taking a uh, metric ton of shit. Is a metric ton heavier than a real ton? I don't even know the answer to that. Why do people say that if it's not? Right? So it must be. It must be more than a real ton. Or the non-metric ton. Um, Dave was taking a ton of shit, metric or otherwise, for this being the first Brian Danielson five-star match after the incredible career that he's had. But I'm sitting here thinking about this, and I gotta tell you, I don't have a five-star American Dragon Brian Danielson match. Or Daniel Bryan. For that matter. I don't have a five-star match of his. I don't think it's crazy. Um... If somebody like Dave Meltzer, who has obviously seen every Daniel Bryan match of relevance on pay-per-view and television in his career, and a smattering of Ring of Honor matches, not all, but a smattering, uh, I don't think it's crazy that someone like that wouldn't have a five-star match for this guy, because I don't believe he had a five-star match in WWE. In fact, I don't think he had any matches in WWE that even sniffed five matches, at least in my view. He had plenty of great matches. 
But a five-star match? I don't think so. And if you're someone like Dave Meltzer who didn't see every Ring of Honor show, and he saw plenty, he got sent the tapes. You know, Sapolsky sent him the tapes. He may have attended some Ring of Honor shows for all I know, um, but I know he's seen a good number of of, uh, Ring of Honor shows, but I know he didn't see them all and review them all. Okay? Um, I could totally see how someone like that wouldn't have a five-star match for this guy. And, and, you know, he obviously wasn't watching um, a lot of his other independent stuff or rating it. So um, I don't know. I was thinking about this, and I just don't understand. Um, I, I don't think it's all that controversial. And here's the other thing. I don't think it matters at all whether Dave Meltzer or Joe Lanza or whoever the fuck has given one or none or 20 of his matches a five-star rating. It means nothing, nothing to his legacy. He's still arguably the greatest American wrestler of all time. He's still arguably one of the greatest wrestlers, period, of all time. If you told me you thought this guy was the greatest wrestler to ever live, I wouldn't argue very hard. And he doesn't need five-star matches a five-star stamp of approval from Dave Meltzer or Joe Lanza or anybody else to be arguably the greatest wrestler of all time. He doesn't need that. It doesn't mean anything. There's wrestlers I've given five stars to uh, multiple times, and I think Brian Danielson's a, a, a better wrestler than they are. You know, so I think way too much was made of it. And when you really look at his resume... um. But let me put it to you this way. If you're someone who primarily saw his WWE work, okay, um, according to Cage Match, and that's what I'm going to use because it's the easiest thing to use, and I, you know, it's, there's other sources too. Let's just use Cage Match because they have a handy tool here in their match guide. If you sort the ratings for Brian Danielson's career matches, okay, the first WWE match that comes up is 20th. 20th, and it's a six-man tag, a TLC six-man tag, Daniel Bryan, Kane, and Ryback versus The Shield, and I have to be completely honest with you, I didn't remember that that match existed until I pulled up this database, that was not a five-star match, Cage Match has it at 9.3, and Dave Meltzer gave it four and a half stars, the highest-rated WWE singles match for Daniel Bryan is 21st, and that's a match against John Cena. Of course, that's the uh, SummerSlam 2013 match, as you probably would have guessed. Once again, four and a half stars from Dave, 9.3 from Cage Match. Fair. Fair. If someone went five on that, okay. But I didn't think that was a five-star match. I don't think it's unreasonable that Dave didn't think it was a five-star match. If you look at his top 30 matches on Cage Match, there's only three WWE matches, period. The third one being CM Punk versus Daniel Bryan from uh, from Over the Limit 2012. So, I don't think his WWE catalog is loaded with five-star contenders. You might have one or two. I'm not going to knock you for it. But, you know, Daniel Bryan, Triple H from WrestleMania 30. I've, I've heard people bring that one up. I didn't even think that was a four-star match. I rated that three and three quarters. 
I didn't even think that was a great match. Daniel Bryan versus Triple H. Dave went four and a quarter. Cage match went 9.04. The Kofi Kingston match a couple of years ago. I went four flat on it. I thought it was a very good match. Dave went four and a half. Okay. I don't think that's a five-star match or anything approaching it. Do you think Daniel Bryan versus Kofi Kingston is one of the greatest matches you've ever seen? Maybe you do. I don't think you're going to find many people who are going to tell you yes. Daniel Bryan versus Edge versus Roman Reigns from this year? No one thinks that's a five-star match. Come on. But I'll tell you right now, on Cage Match, that's his sixth highest rated WWE match. His WWE catalog is filled with a... Look, the guy's a great wrestler. Every time he stepped in the ring in WWE, he put in a great performance. But I don't think he has this huge catalog of great WWE matches. He's got a lot of very good ones, and he has some great ones. But I don't even think people can reach a consensus on what his best WWE match was, let alone something that's an all-time great match in the pantheon of all-time great matches that is a no-brainer five-star match. It just doesn't exist. And that's what someone like Dave Meltzer is working with. Now, Dave rated plenty of his Ring of Honor stuff, but there's no Dave Meltzer star rating for uh, Danielson's match against Chris Hero in PWG because Dave didn't watch it. Dave rated two of the Nigel McGuinness matches from Ring of Honor very high. He gave one four and three quarters and one of them four and a half. Uh, But the third highly regarded bout from the sixth anniversary show, Dave didn't even see that match. This is what I'm talking about. This is a guy who's working off of the WWE catalog and some of the Ring of Honor matches and basically nothing else. It's not unreasonable. And we have to put an asterisk on this anyway because Dave said he would have given Danielson McGinnis five stars. And I'm talking about the one from uh, uh, Unified. The one with the nasty headbutts, except he deducted a quarter star because of the headbutts. Which, again, is not completely unreasonable if if you think that that kind of thing is too violent. But uh, no rating for Brian Danielson versus Shingo from Dragon Gate USA, which some people would give five stars. Dave didn't even watch it. No rating for the uh, Takeshi Morishima fight without honor. That's the one from December 2008 at Final Battle. Which some people would give five stars. Dave didn't watch or rate it. No rating for the Davy Richards match in 2009 on the you know farewell tour. The Kenta match from Driven 2007. All matches that maybe some of you listening to gave five stars to. Dave didn't even watch them. So again, this is not unreasonable. And I saw all these matches. And I have to tell you, I don't think I have a five-star Brian Danielson match. I don't think I do. I didn't even go five on the Omega match. I eventually settled on four and three quarters. And it means nothing. Who cares? Why does this matter? It doesn't. It looks like Dave watched in the rookie Doi match from Dragon Gate USA. He gave that one four and three quarters. It's like... um. You know, 
there's three or four four and three quarter rated matches here. No, there's five. Six. So we really think it's a big deal that one guy, and I get he's the most influential guy, and I get that his star ratings mean a lot uh, because he's been, they used to mean more before he broke his own scale. A lot of people don't respect his ratings as much anymore. To me, when Dave goes above five, I just, I don't, it, it doesn't enter my brain. It's just five. When Dave goes six and a quarter on a match, I ignore it. It's five. But I know some people, it's just, ah, he broke the scale. I don't care anymore. And I understand that. But not only does it not matter, I don't think it's unreasonable. When you look at the man's catalog, I don't have any either. And maybe if Dave Meltzer watched every one of these Ring of Honor matches and saw all the indie stuff that, that, that all of you listening to saw, he'd have one or two. But big deal. Who gives a shit? Somebody talk him into watching the Shingo match. He may have gone five on that. That is so up his alley. I didn't go five on it. But again, who cares? What a silly, quote-unquote, controversy that all was. I guess we should talk about the G1 a little bit, right? I've got all the reviews behind the paywall, I think, as of this recording. We have everything through night seven. By the time most of you listen to this, we'll have everything through night eight. Up behind the paywall, daily G1 audio like we do every year. Um, Here's the thing about the G1. I need some water. Hold on. in the morning. Um, Here's the thing about the G1 this year. There's nothing wrong with any of these shows. I don't think any of the shows have been bad. I don't think all of the shows have been what I would call good. Some of them have been firmly average. But that's not even my biggest problem with this year's G1. My biggest problem with this year's G1 and you can listen to me talk about each one in detail, $5 tier, patreon.com slash voices of wrestling. The month has turned. It is now October. It's the best time to get in. It's the best time to subscribe. Uh, first of the month, that's where you get the most value, okay, because you get charged the first of every month. Uh, $5 tier gets you just about everything we do. $10 tier gets you everything we have ever done, including these daily G1 reviews. But uh, – The thing about this G1 isn't that the shows are bad. It's that they don't feel like G1 shows. The matches lack the G1 intensity. The matches lack uh, that G1 feel that you're used to. And it's not the clap crowds. Last year we had the clap crowds. And it, for the most part, aside from the fact that we had clap crowds, the matches felt like G1 matches. This year's matches... Do not feel like G1 matches because the matches lack the intensity. And that's on the wrestlers. And I'm not criticizing them. I don't blame them. They've been wrestling in front of these lousy clap crowds. Uh, they're, they're not drawing particularly well, even by the partial crowd standards in, in all of the uh, venues. And, you know, it's got to be wearing these guys thin. 
and they're not going out there and giving you vintage 2013 G1 performances. And I can't blame them. The intensity levels just aren't there. There's been some good stuff. There's even been some great stuff. Shingo versus Ishii was a great G1 match. You put it up there with any of the great G1 matches from years past. Tanahashi versus Okada, same thing. It's impossible for those two guys not to deliver. That felt like a G1 match. That had the intensity. That felt special, like a G1 match should. Zack Sabre Jr. is a big story in this year's G1, and he's having good matches every time out. His matches don't have that G1 intensity. The Ishii matches outside of the Shingo bout on night one, they lack that G1 intensity. Some of the other, now look, we know that it's not the greatest field on the bottom half. Because Will Ospreay and Jay White and, and, uh, and Minoru Suzuki and you go right down the line. All of the people who aren't in this tournament who typically over the last few years have been in it. Who are, you can count on to have great matches. Even someone like Juice Robinson who's better than uh, some of the people that have replaced these names. So that's been a factor too. But oddly enough, it's those guys on the bottom who are working hard because they're taking advantage of the opportunity. Chase Owens is out there killing himself. Tamatanga has been shockingly good. Okay, but we're not getting the vintage G1 performances out of your Ishis, out of your Kota Ibushis. I think Kota Ibushi, outside of, uh, I think, uh, a match, maybe a match or two, we just... You know, he hasn't been the same since his illness. Okada's in tremendous shape. And he's not having bad matches, but outside of the Tanahashi match, his matches are lacking that G1 punch. So that's what's going on with this year's G1. It just doesn't feel like G1 because that G1 intensity is not there. And that's what's hurting this tournament. And the other thing hurting this tournament TV Asahi is killing this fucking company. And I'm not saying New Japan's going to be dead in a year. You know, figure of speech, but they're killing this fucking company with the copyright strikes. And somebody needs to get in a room and work this shit out because it's a problem. They're trying to run shows in America as we speak, and they can't sell a fucking ticket. They can't sell, they can't give away tickets to these shows in America. And preventing people from posting uh, GIFs (coughs) and even still photos, still photos from these G1 shows without copyright striking people. It's absurd. No one is talking about this G1 in the West. I can't speak for Japan. Why? Because people are terrified to post about it. They don't want to lose their Twitter accounts and their Facebook accounts and everything else. They're scared. So they've thrown their hands. No one's talking about it. The, the remaining people actually watching this thing are afraid to talk about it. The other day, when I woke up in the morning and compulsively went to my phone, I briefly forgot that there was a G1 show a few hours earlier as I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed. And there was no shot I was getting spoiled on anything. 
I'm going through my Twitter feed thinking, oh, wait a minute. There was a G1 show last night. Maybe I should stop. But I kept going, and I didn't get spoiled on a thing. Because nobody is talking about these shows or these matches. It's incredible. You don't even have to attempt to prevent being spoiled from results for this thing. Because no one's watching and nobody cares. It's cold to begin with because of the pandemic. And they're shooting themselves in the foot and making things harder on themselves by not allowing people to talk about it. It's absurd. Get in a room with your television partner and work it out. You don't have TV in America. You don't let people post still photos from your shows. So how can you be surprised when there's 48 people at a show in Dallas? How can you be surprised? How can you be surprised when John Moxley needs to bail you out in Philadelphia? It's a joke. They should be encouraging people to post GIFs and videos and pictures of these shows and work up a little buzz. Because they have none. Nobody cares right now. And the shows aren't great, so not a lot of matches are getting buzz. So that's not helping. You know, God bless Zack Sabre Jr. with his little, you know, grapple fucks. They're, I've enjoyed them, but, you know. This isn't a classic G1. And they're hurting themselves on top of it. And you really, you know, you, 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 I'm not doing the meme here. You hate to see it. You really do. You hate to see this. It doesn't have to be this way. And they're creating animosity with the with the few people who are still paying attention to them. Why are you going out of your way to have a contentious relationship with your fans? When you don't have TV here, no one cares about the Roku show. I've never seen a single person talk about that thing. And Now I can see if they weren't trying to sell tickets here. Then okay, who cares about the West? I, I would understand that. But they're running a tour here as we speak that they can't give away tickets to. Get your head out of your ass. Get in a room with your TV partner and figure it out. I'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, "Ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates... It's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. 
I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying... Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network all right so we will get to extreme rules at the end of the show that's going to be the last thing we do today Wanted to touch on a couple of other uh, quick topics. I have caught up on the NWA Power. I hadn't been following NWA Power since the double pay-per-views in St. Louis. I binge-watched everything they've done to this point in the uh, uh, St. Louis tapings that followed the pay-per-views. And I am here to report that I got to tell you, NWA Power has somehow managed to get worse than it was before in this current season, which I believe they're calling uh, season six. I don't know if it's if that's accurate. Um, it is horrendous. I, I These are new depths. I don't know if it's possible for the show to be worse than it is right now. It's just terrible. And I know it's not the greatest roster. That's really no excuse. I mean, it's part of the reason, don't get me wrong. But uh, it's just... A horrendous, unwatchable mess of a show. And I cannot tell you to stay further away from the uh, current NWA season. And there's nothing on the horizon that they've teased or talked about which would make me say uh, that things are looking up or maybe it'll get better as the tapings move along. No, this it's just... Horrible. Almost beyond words. Um, I gotta tell you, I'd rather plop down on the couch and enjoy any 
standard three-hour Raw than sit down and uh, and watch a comparable three hours of this Power show. The only difference being, the only area in which Power has an edge is that it's one-third the length. Actually a little shorter because it runs like 48 minutes or something um, most weeks. That is the only advantage it has to Monday Night Raw, which is obviously you know one of the worst wrestling shows in television history right now. So, um, NWA Power, uh, firmly the thumbs down on what I've seen from that. Uh, and that's all the time I'm going to spend on it because that's all it deserves. MLW, I've been watching the uh, MLW, which has in fact returned as well. MLW Fusion Alpha is the name of the YouTube show now. And then, of course, uh, MLW debuts on Vice on October 7th with the Fightland special. Let's go over that Fightland card. That's going to tape on the 2nd. So that's going to tape sometime this weekend after some of you listen to this. But it's not going to air until the 7th. Now, they're only airing a one-hour special that's going to air on Vice on the 7th. Now, I don't know if... This entire show is eventually going to air, and it's just going to be uh, in one-hour chunks. I don't know if they're just going to pick their best hour for – I don't know. Listen, it's – I don't know. I would assume that this entire show is going to air at some point since it has all of the Opera Cup matches on it and some other stuff that they've been pushing on the Fusion show. So I think we're probably going to get all of this uh, eventually airing on Vice until um, – everything on the show airs that that's my interpretation but um but i can't guarantee that all i know is on the 7th which is a thursday which is this upcoming thursday uh we're getting the debut of of mlw on vice and we're getting some of these matches including jacob fatu defending the world title against hammerstone who is the national champion this is title for title and they've been hyping this one up on Fusion. And this is their big unification match. And they've been building Hammerstone up for this. So, Fatu does have a title defense before that against Matt Cross on next week's uh, next week's Fusion Alpha. Which airs on YouTube on Wednesday. It's already been taped. That's from the ECW Arena. And Hammerstone successfully defended the national title this past week. Against Filthy Tom Lawler. So they both had a defense coming into this bout. Um, Obviously, Fatu, I didn't read the spoilers, but I think it's a certainty that he defeats Matt Cross on Wednesday. Because they're not going to blow this big unification match that they had set uh, for their debut on Vice. Which is the biggest match they can make. And is absolutely the correct match to go with. With their debut on Vice. And... Um, I assume Hammerstone's gonna win. This is the guy they've been they've been building and uh, and giving the rocket strap to, and he his push really took off during the last I guess uh, you would call it season of MLW during the pandemic where they taped in the empty building. Uh, the guy's just a beast. He beats everybody. It seems like the only guy that he doesn't that he can't beat is this Mods Kruger of Contra, who he has. Some of the worst matches of the year that you'll ever see against. I mean, the matches are, are, are horrendous. I mean, they're just awful. Um, but everybody else he beats. And he beat Tom Lawler this past week on Fusion. And they still have Mads Kruger cutting promos on him during the show. 
So uh, my assumption here is that Hammerstone will win the title and uh, move into a world title feud with Mads Kruger, which which will absolutely, without question, be the drizzling shits. Now what they could do, since Mads Kruger is part of Contra, is they could have Mads Kruger cost Hammerstone the match against Fatu. Uh, that would be some very uh, shitty booking, in my opinion. I think you build up this Fatu Hammerstone match, and you've got a big debut on Vice. That uh, you want to give people a winner. I mean, give the people a winner. But it's pro wrestling, and I wouldn't be stunned at all if Mods Krugar cost Hammerstone the match, and then that way Fatu moves on to whatever he's going to move on to with the world title, and he is a good world champion. And then Hammerstone continues his feud. With uh, with Mads Krugar, which has been one of the worst feuds in all of pro wrestling this year. And the matches have been among the worst matches in pro wrestling this year. So, um, that'll be on Vice this week. And this is also being taped in the ECW arena, by the way. Other matches, they just announced this this week on Fusion. Myron Reed defends the middle rate title against Tajiri, Arez, and Aramis. Now, Arez and Aramis got added to the match they had a singles match on Fusion this week, which rocked. Uh, everybody has access to YouTube. I would recommend watching that match. It opens up the show. You're in and out in, in 12 minutes, and it was an excellent match, especially if you've never seen Arez versus Aramis. I've seen them wrestle 10,000 times. This was their greatest hits, uh, but they nailed everything. They got over with the crowd, and as a result, during uh, later on in that episode of Fusion, it was announced that they were added to this middleweight title match, so they're doing a four-way as far as Tajiri goes, I hope Court Bauer realizes he's getting 2021 Tajiri and not the Japanese buzzsaw. Okay? Uh, look, I love Tajiri. He's one of my favorite wrestlers ever. He just doesn't have it anymore. So, uh, he basically... Tajiri in 2021 is to, is getting by on being Tajiri. Okay? He's not getting by on being Tajiri from, you know, being Tajiri to Japanese buzzsaw Tajiri. He's, he's Tajiri just out there being Tajiri... And getting by on being, he's on wrestle like Tajiri. He's just he getting by because he is Tajiri. I mean that you know he goes out there and and he's Tajiri. But you know he, he he's not you know what he once was as Tajiri. He's he's you know I mean he's, he's old. What do you want? The guy's uh you know he's fifty one years old. The spark is gone. You know you see glimpses of what used to be there. But no, he's uh you know. This isn't the return of the Japanese buzzsaw to the ECW arena. Okay? This is a uh, shadow of his former self. We have the Opera Cup stuff. We'll get to that in a second. Nicole Savoy versus Holly Dead in a women's match. And then we have Los Parks. L.A. Park and his boys, L.A. Park Jr. and El Hio D. L.A. Park. Against the 5150 crew with Conan. Slice Boogie. Rivera. Which is uh, the former... Um, it, uh, his name is slipping me. And Dr. Julius Smokes. Does this mean that Julius Smokes... Danny Limelight. Rivera is Danny Limelight. Does this mean Julius Smokes is going to wrestle? I mean, because we know Conan's not going to wrestle. Julius Smokes going to put on the boots? And get in there against Los Parks? Alright. And then we have the uh, Opera Cup stuff. These are the four first round matches. It is... Uh, you know, they're being billed... At least on Wikipedia here, as semifinal matches. Does that mean that the Opera Cup final is a four-way? That would be a disgrace. 
Now, look, you know, am I going to sit here and tell you that I even knew what the Upper Cup was before MLW rolled it out a couple years ago and Davey Boy Smith Jr. won it and all that? No, I did not. But now knowing what the Upper Cup is and the history behind it, you can't do a four-way in the final. I really hope this is some kind of mistake. But I guess we'll see. Here's your first round matches for the Opera Cup. And these are taking place at this taping here at DCW Arena. Tom Lawlor versus Davey Richards. Bobby Fish against Lee Moriarty. Alex Shelley against TJP. And Matt Cross versus Calvin Tankman. That tournament rocks. Now if they're doing a four-way to, to complete it, that's really disappointing. Very disappointing. And I really hope that's not the route that they're going. Um, Because you've got some tasty matchups right there in the first round. Tom Lawler and Davey Richards stands out. Bobby Fish versus Lee Moriarty. I mean, that could be excellent. Alex Shelley versus TJP. I mean, I should fly to Philly. Cross Tankman. eh. But, um... But then looking down the line, I mean, looking at the possible matchups for the following rounds, and you're just going to throw these guys at, you know, I really shouldn't be burying them because I don't know for sure, but it'd be a real shame if they're just throwing those guys into some goofy four-way match to determine the winner of this Opera Cup, which they have treated with some reverence. I mean, give MLW credit. They, they dug this thing out of fucking Davy Boy Smith Jr.'s attic a couple of years ago. You know, this old Opera Cup that used to be competed for and won by the likes of Stu Hart. I think that's how Davey Boy got a hold of it. And they've treated it well. It's just been a straight-laced wrestling tournament. I'd be very disappointed. Extremely disappointed. If that ends up being some hokey four-way. Speaking of extreme. Man, what a segue. Master of the segue. Add that to my list of nicknames. Actually, don't. That one kind of sucks. Um, so, we've got to talk about this Extreme Rules show, right? We've got to. So, uh, we will do that now. I opened up with WWE last week when we previewed Extreme Rules. I certainly wasn't going to open up with WWE this week. That'd be going too far. Um, I hated this show. I could not stand this Extreme Rules show. Um, It's not that I thought the work was bad or anything. I thought the work was actually pretty good in just about every match up and down the card. I mean, I'm looking at the card now, and the work was good in every single match on the pay-per-view. I did – I hate to disappoint, but uh, I did not tune in to the WWE Network to watch Liv Morgan defeat Carmella by pinfall. I'm sorry. I know I'm lazy. I know I'm pulling a crate here. But I did not watch the pre-show. I don't need Liv Morgan versus Carmella in my life. I don't need that. I have no use for it. I have no use for Liv Morgan, the velvet painting of a sad clown. I, I can I can live without it. Um, but the rest of the pay-per-view, I thought everybody worked hard in all six matches. But this show was utterly destroyed by uh, booking and post-match shenanigans and complete and utter nonsense to the point where 
you know, you feel bad for the wrestlers. They go out there and work hard. They bust their ass to give the fans a good show. And uh, it's just mired in shitty finishes and and uh, and disappointing outcomes and uh, whatever the fuck it was we saw at the end of the main event. And it's a shame. It's a shame. And to me, it's crazy how they've got AEW right on their heels in terms of market share and in terms of um, competing for television contracts in a few years. And they continue to give fans finishes and shows like this when all those fans have to do is sample Wednesday night and see that they're going to get the complete antithesis of this type of thing and possibly be swayed by it. Possibly see that there's a better way to consume your pro wrestling where you're not going to be treated like an imbecile or more importantly, feel like you're being cheated. You know, that's Charlotte Flair, not Charlotte Flair. That Becky Lynch Bianca Belair match, it you know, it felt like you got cheated if you're a fan. With the Sasha Banks, I was gonna say finish, but there's no fin there was no finish. I mean it's a big match. And they just don't give you anything. They give you another wrestler running in what? To set up some hokey three way, more than likely. It's just, you know, the wrestlers, they work hard. They put in these performances, you know. People plunk down their fucking whatever peacock cost or the ticket cost. And you get this bullshit. I I don't know. To me, this was a horrible show. I don't care if how good. And look, you know, I, I say the wrestling was good, but it, it wasn't Masawa uh, fucking Kobashi, okay? It wasn't exactly Tanahashi Okada, but the, the wrestling was fine. It wasn't enough to make up for the rest of the awful that encompassed this fucking show. Okay, it was a bunch of nice little three-star matches that, you know, they, they could have been, you know, if they had proper finishes, this would have been a nice little show, but... You know, instead we got what we got. So, let's go through this. We open up with The New Day. And they defeat Bobby Lashley, AJ Styles, and Omos in a six-man tag. And I do have to say this. After talking about uh, Big E the last couple of weeks and his push, he has been winning matches lately. So, give them credit. I still don't like doing a Raw where he loses both matches the week after he won the title. That's a disgrace. Um, but he's actually winning matches now. He wins this match, and he won this with the big ending. So he pinned the biggest star on the other side and the guy he's feuding with. They didn't have, you know, Kofi Kingston pin almost with the Trouble in Paradise or something here. It was Biggie beating Bobby Lashley with the big ending. And then on Raw, it was Biggie. Beating Bobby Lashley in a cage match. So, give him credit. This is what they should be doing. Big E should be beating Bobby Lashley like a drum. Bobby Lashley had been a dominant champion. Big E beats him for the title. In a uh, cash-in scenario that doesn't make him look very strong. 
but now he's been beating Bobby Lashley like a drum. If I'm going to come on here and criticize the company for the way that Big E was built and then won the title, I have to be fair and I have to throw roses and praise him a little bit for the way things have gone since the last time you and I spoke. So they've done a good job with this Big E Lashley thing in the interim. Now, I could come on here next week after Big E loses the title back to Lashley on Raw or something uh, as we get ready for fucking Saudi WrestleMania. Uh, you know, and, and come on here and rant and complain again. But everything I saw this week, you know, they did a nice job. You got to be honest about it. And I like the strategy they're using on Raw going up against the football. And I, and I would guess that Dynamite nipping on their heels has something to do with it too. But it's primarily the football taking away. You know, the football always chips away at their ratings this time of year. What they're doing is they announced something big for Raw. Which, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago was the big uh, trios match with the Bloodline versus New Day, for, for example. And they, they open up the show with whatever this big thing is that they announce on, on, on Monday afternoon or whatever. And then that big match, which opens up the show, usually leads to an impromptu big match to close the show. Which, in the case of this past week, was the Big E versus Bobby Lashley cage match. Right? Which was set up based on the events of the opener of Raw, where things got out of control, New Day's involved... The uh, Hurt Business reforms, they get involved. So we're like, you know what? We're going to keep everybody out of this. We're going to do Big E and Bobby Lashley for the belt in the main event. And we're putting you guys in a cage so your pals can't get involved. So I like this style of booking and this approach that they're using. Because it makes sure, it ensures that, or you know, the, the idea is that everybody tunes in at the start of the show to see this big match that they've announced. And then they're attempting to hook you for what they're going to give you at the end of the show. Hopefully you'll stick around. Hopefully you won't flip over to the Monday Night Football. But at minimum, the hope is that you'll come back at the end of the third hour and watch this big main event. And it did work about three weeks ago when Big E promised to do his cash-in. Because the third hour did much better than normal for that. Um, The last couple of weeks... They've tried sort of that formula. And look, it's a decent strategy. And, you know, it's, you know, we know it's a media rights game right now. So, you know, you have to do everything you can to fight Monday Night Football or or AEW nipping at your heels or whatever it is. So I have enjoyed that. Now, what I didn't like this past Monday is the fucking steel cage was already hanging over the ring from the ceiling. Before, in kayfabe, we knew that there was going to be a cage match. Now, now let me walk you through this, because there were actually people defending this and saying that I was wrong. About complaining about the cage being over the ring, and having no kayfabe explanation for that. Okay, on Monday Night Raw, this past week, they opened up the show. And let me get you the the exact particulars of this match because this is uh this was infuriating that people were arguing with me and I I don't want to get anything wrong. So Monday Night Raw this past week opened with Big E versus Bobby Lashley for the title and this was the match where I felt like Big E just needed to pin Bobby Lashley clean in the middle with the big ending. Cuz then 
He beats him in the six-man tag at Extreme Rules clean with the big ending. And now he could beat him in a singles match clean in the middle with the big ending. But they went with the no contest where the New Day and the Hurt Business reformed. And that was the big angle. And then, as I said, then because it was a no contest with people getting involved, they set up the, the, the cage match for later on in the show. But here's the thing. There was no cage match planned on the books or ready to announce right when the show started. The only reason the cage match was taking place is because the opening match on the show went to this wild no contest. Therefore, there would have been no reason for the cage to be hanging over the ring. That breaks kayfabe. Because if you come to the arena and there's a giant fucking cage hanging over the ring... And the main event is Big E versus Bobby Lashley in a singles match. And then it's wild and they say, oh, well, we're going to do it again in the cage. And I go, well, that, that, you know, the cage was already up there. Now, I've got people telling me, oh, this isn't a big deal. Wrestling's fake, you know. Uh, did you know wrestling was worked? It doesn't matter. You know, it would be one thing if it was Twitter eggs. I got Danny Cage coming at me on Twitter. A man who's been in the business for decades saying, why does it matter that the cage was hanging over the ring before they announced in kayfabe that there would in fact be a cage match? This man has been in the business for decades. And he doesn't understand this? He should be defending kayfabe against Twitter eggs. Not joining the Twitter eggs in telling me that kayfabe doesn't matter. We either have standards here or we don't. And the you know and we don't. We don't have any standards. To the point the fan these fans are coming at me and telling me I shouldn't care. Well, that's been WWE's problem for a long time now. They tell us that we shouldn't care. So some of us don't anymore. That's the issue. And no, it may not seem like a big deal that the cage was hanging there, but it bothers me. Oh, well, you know, it's fake, you know. It, it's worked. Yeah, so is every other television show on TV. But all of them strive to make sense and not insult your intelligence. And none of them have people using the excuse of, ah, well, you know, it's the show's a work. Who cares? What's the difference if what the character did this week doesn't make sense into relation to what the character did last week? It's just a fake TV show. Nobody says that. No one approaches any other form of entertainment this way. Nobody approaches any other form of pro wrestling this way. It's only WWE that gets off the hook. From their most passionate fans when they pull shit like this. And I have to have a guy who's been in the business for 20 years telling me that I shouldn't care. What a horrible advertisement for the Monster Factory. Why would anyone train there after seeing that Twitter exchange? I mean, it's embarrassing. But you know what it is? 
Danny Cage is one of these Northeastern guys who grew up with WWE. And he feels like he has to defend it like it's his little sister. He's one of these guys. I'm not going to name names, but... You know, I, I know a group of wrestlers personally from the Northeast. And they gather together for every WWE pay-per-view. And they sit there and watch Lily. And none of these guys watch AEW because it's, quote, the shits. It's indie-rific. Meanwhile, they're all indie wrestlers. It's indie-rific. It's this, these North, sometimes these Northeast guys, because they grew up with it, they have like this weird loyalty to it. I grew up with it. But I can recognize that it fucking sucks. And I'm honest with myself. Danny Cage defending this is a disgrace. It's an embarrassment to him and his school. You you don't care about kayfabe? Then what the fuck is the point? What are we doing here? Why don't you just tell me who's going to win all the matches while we're at it, before the show starts? Hang your little cage up there, above the ring, and just a neon flashing sign that, you know, none of this matters, and just tell me who's going to win all the matches. Just, just you know, what, well, what, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Who cares? It's worked. It's fake, you know. Okay. Then what are we even doing here? Why even, why even do this? I'll go watch through Mad Men for the fourth time instead. That makes sense. Nothing ever happens, but at least the show makes sense. I'll go watch through Sopranos for the 18th time. Do you imagine turning on the Sopranos like halfway through season three and all of a sudden, uh, you know, Uncle June is the fucking boss and... And Tony's not, it's just a capo again. And, uh, you know, and Tony, and, uh, and, uh, Tony's mother is, she's alive now after she already died. And, and you're like, what the fuck is this? What am I watching? And you went on Twitter and we're like, Hey, what's going on with the Sopranos? Everything is, is, you know, Livia's alive again. Uncle June is no longer in trouble on house arrest and he's running the family and, uh, Tony's like a side character. Uh, You know, uh, hanging out with Gigi. What's going on here? And and, and people replied to you, ah, well, you know, it's a fake TV show. Who cares? Why does it have to make sense? And one of those people saying that to you was like a showrunner for another show on TV. Like the guy who fucking, uh, you know, The guy who made Lost uh, jumps into your mentions and is like, ah, well, you know. Well, that maybe that's a bad example because people tell me that show didn't make sense. But you get the idea. You know. And someone who makes another television show jumps in your mentions to say, oh, well, you know, who cares? What's the big deal? Livia's alive now. So what? Why don't you just enjoy it? Why don't you just sit down and enjoy it for what it is? I mean, it's no different. This is an apples 
two apples comparison. These people are out of their fucking minds. And only WWE gets this kind of pass. If Tony Khan had a cage hung over his ring for the first 45 minutes of a dynamite, okay, with no cage match announced, and then Chris Jericho and Dan Lambert get themselves into an impromptu fucking promo battle, and then uh, Dan Lambert challenges Chris Jericho to a cage match against Andre Orlovsky, And then Excalibur says, oh, we got word from the back. Tony Khan says he's going to book that match. And it's happening tonight. And then the camera pans up. And the cage is already over the ring. How do you think these same people would be reacting? You think they're going to give Tony a pass? You think they're going to say, just watch the show and enjoy it? It's all fake anyway? Not a chance. I can't enjoy it because it fucking stinks. That's why. Ah, God, it drives you nuts. The Usos defeat the Street Profits and successfully defend the SmackDown Tag Team titles. This was... The best way I could describe this is a solid television match. If you've seen these two teams wrestle before, I need a second. If you've seen these two teams wrestle before, then you have, in fact, seen this match before. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, And you have seen them wrestle before. They've had many matches on television. They had another one at Extreme Rules 2021 from the uh, Nationwide Arena in Columbus, Ohio. Good, solid professional wrestling match. Followed by Charlotte Flair defeating Alexa Bliss for the Raw Women's title. A lot of title matches on this show. And the match was fine. I see a lot of people going overboard on the quality of the match. It was fine. But they, uh, the post-match is what everybody is talking about. Charlotte Flair tears up the uh, dopey little voodoo doll. Reducing Alexa Bliss to tears. And they probably spent what felt like an hour, but was probably like three or four minutes of real time on Alexa Bliss uh, reacting to her torn up uh, toy. Crying, screaming, pulling her hair out. It felt like a write-off for both the uh, voodoo doll Lily and possibly for this Alexa Bliss character, but probably not. Um, but at minimum, we're either taking a break from the voodoo doll or we're writing the voodoo doll off. And uh, this was just utterly ridiculous. Utter nonsense. 
I wish someone would do this to that um, to that awful, intolerable Daryl over in New Japan. But see, they've already done that. I remember Bad Luck Fale uh, ripped Daryl to pieces, and I thought we were finally rid of that annoyance. But uh, Daryl did make a return. But the thing about Daryl is Hiromu doesn't like come down to the ring with Daryl anymore. He was for a while, and it was cringy and embarrassing. You know, and I think it was really hurting his ability to be a true top star. Hey, did Stan Hansen ever come down to the ring with a fucking stuffed animal? How about uh, Kawada? Did Kawada uh, come down for big triple crown matches carrying his favorite plushie? Did he do that? I don't think he did. You know, did uh, Terry Funk ever uh, have a, a, a stuffed animal that he won at the carnival? Supporting him in the corner for a big match. I, I don't remember, but I don't think so. How about Ric Flair? You ever style and profile? Have a little stuffed animal with him in the for support? No. Um So that's why I'm anti Daryl. But Hiromu stopped coming to the ring with the thing, so that's fine. If they want to sell their little Daryls and uh, I get it. It's merchandise. But Daryl, you know, is not like the voodoo doll in that it doesn't have any mystical powers. Daryl is just a literal toy. And it's just cringy and drags Hiromu's star power down. Whereas the voodoo doll has like mystical powers. It winks to the fucking camera. It's utterly ridiculous. That's the difference. And, uh, Maybe this was a write-off. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe we get a a uh, a stronger, more powerful version of what am I? What am I doing? Let's move on. Um, Damian Priest defeats Jeff Hardy and Sheamus in a three-way for the uh, United States title. Decent little match. Priest does a uh, schoolboy gimmick on Sheamus for the win. After Sheamus hits a bro kick. I think that's what he calls it. On uh, on Jeff Hardy. So typical WWE three-way. Someone gets a surprise pin after the other guy hits his finish. Because we have to protect everyone. I mean, protect everyone at all costs. Ensure that no one gets over. That's what we have to do here. That's the goal. Becky Lynch versus Bianca Belair. This ends in uh, a double DQ or a no contest or a fucking, I, I don't know. What does Wikipedia say? Wikipedia says this ends in a no contest after outside interference. What does Cage Match say? Cage Match is calling this a no contest. I guess it's a no contest. Again, the match was fine. It was well on its way to being like a three and a quarter with a really good finish, a three and a half, three and three quarter kind of match. Like most everything else on the show. Um, and then after, you know, 17, 18 minutes of good action, Sasha Banks shows up and just beats everybody up. Uh, you know, 
And then there's, you know, we don't get a finish. Just watch it. Just enjoy it. Maybe it's so critical for it. Just, just watch it, Joe. So what? So what you don't get a finish? Who cares? Just watch it. I've been in the business for three decades. Just no one cares about kayfabe. Trust me. Just watch it. I train the next generation of wrestlers. I don't care about kayfabe. Why should you? Just watch it. I mean, you know, what are we doing with Bianca Belair here? Now, we're going to get some dopey three-way, which does nothing for anyone, as I just demonstrated with the previous match. Yeah, maybe Bianca Belair will win that or, you know. But it'll be after the man, like, does her finish to Sasha, and then Bianca, like, sneak attacks her with her fucking hair tail or something. Or does a schoolboy like Damian Priest did. Or the opposite. You know, Sasha Banks will hit the fucking whatever she hits. Isn't the bank statement a submission or something? So I can't. Well, maybe she'll have her in the bank statement. Right? And Bianca will do a fucking senton or something. And then, uh, I don't know. It'd be the usual WWE three-way finish where, you know, nobody is the better for it. And Bianca just keeps spinning on that hamster wheel. That That's what we're doing here. This show fucking sucked. It sucked. This show sucked. Now, how you can watch this show and think anything other than this show sucks? What the fuck am I watching? I'm watching garbage. I'm watching, you know, garbage in the form of a wrestling show. That's what I'm watching with this show. Roman Reigns defeats the demon, Finn Balor, in an Extreme Rules match, which was going along just fine. <laughs> I don't even... <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? What, what do you want me to say? They don't make it easy. You know, what am I supposed to say about this? All right, let me walk you through it. It's extreme rules, so perfectly legal, Cole, to have the Usos come down and just make this a three-on-one match. That's perfectly legal, Cole. So the Usos come down, and there's all kinds of chaos going going down at this point. And the demon, you know, he's down for the, he's down and he's out on the floor. This is all over. All Roman Reigns has to do is roll the carcass of this uh, supernatural being back into the ring, put his foot on his chest, and get the one, two, three. Wipe his hands clean, and we're out of here. Another big win for the man who wishes to be acknowledged. But no. We hear the demon's music. And we hear the heartbeat of the demon. And with each beat of the heart, the body of the demon is flopping around on the floor like a fish. 
because the heart is beating again. Which begs the question, was the man dead prior to this music turning on? The arena lights go down, the red lights come on. We hear the literal heartbeat as he is pumped back to life. And now Roman Reigns has been had. I don't know why the demon didn't use his magical powers earlier in the match to just overpower Roman Reigns. I guess he had to die first at the hands of the of the SmackDown Tag Team Champions, the Usos. They had to murder him first for him to turn on these superpowers. <laughs> the fuck? What is this? What is this show? What is this company? This is why when people say to me, they say, "Oh, Joe, I hear you uh I hear you have a podcast." I hear you have a uh, a website of some sort. What do you what do you do, Joe? I say, yeah, that's true. I co-own a website and I, I do a podcast. And then they say, oh, what about? And then I never tell them. Because it's embarrassing and humiliating to tell people that it's this. It's humiliating. Because this is the market leader. And this is what people will think of. If I say oh. It's it's a pro wrestling podcast. It's a pro wrestling website. Because I've fallen into that trap before. And then the next thing they always say is. Oh. You mean like WWE? And then I curl up into a ball in sheer horror and embarrassment. So now I don't even tell them. In my mind, I'm thinking, why are you talking to me? Stop asking so many questions. You nosy piece of shit. You can't say that to someone who's just being friendly. So I simply dodge the question. Oh, it's boring stuff. You wouldn't care. I, I, you know, I don't want to talk about it. So, uh, how about this weather? And then I look like a goof for saying that my podcast and website are boring shit that you wouldn't want to hear about. And they get this look on their face like, why is this guy blowing me off? I'm just trying to be friendly. But that's less humiliating than telling them that it's a pro wrestling podcast. It's less humiliating because of shit like this. So then the demon, who has now been revived by his entrance music and his beating heart, uh, gets back in the ring and sets up Roman Reigns for the coup de gras. And the top rope of the ring falls off, just at that point, collapses. Collapsing the demon's body to the mat. Which magically shuts down his music. And the fancy red lights and the smoke. I guess they were all attached to this top rope. 
doesn't have to make sense. Why are you trying to make sense of it, Joe? Just watch it. Why can't you just watch it? Why can't you accept, Joe, that The Wire is no longer about drug dealers and cops and how they interact in the streets of Baltimore and now it's a family sitcom with Omar as the patriarch. Why can't you just accept this? It's fake anyway. Why does it have to make sense? That now the wire is about Omar's home life and he has a family and some precocious children who are always into some kind of mischief. And the hijinks that ensue. Why can't you accept this? That's what, you know. I know it doesn't match the tone of of the last episode of the but it's all fake. Joe, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Just watch it. Crying face emoji. Just watch it. So then the top rope collapsing and Finn Balor falling off the top rope immediately reverted the demon back to Finn Balor and he didn't have magical powers anymore and uh, Roman Reigns crawls over and, and pins him. And none of that was made up. That is all exactly what happened in this in, in this match. And that was Extreme Rules. From the Nationwide Arena in Columbus, Ohio. 9500 paid. You have to wonder. Now look. Children and mouth-breathing imbeciles are going to enjoy this kind of thing. Right? Children and the lowest adults among us. Like, you know, people that you would never associate with in real life. They're going to enjoy this kind of thing. Um, but you have to wonder what percentage of the 9500 people at the Nationwide Arena in Cleveland, Ohio, were so put off by this nonsense um, that they'll never buy a ticket again. And look, I'm not suggesting it's half the people or even 10% of the people. Because if you bought a ticket to begin with, on some level you enjoy this trash. Uh, You know, on some level. But how many, what percentage do you think of this, let's call it an even 10,000 people, are just, this was the final straw? It has to be some portion of that crowd, right? A couple hundred? A couple dozen at minimum? Who have just, you know, I I can't. And I think that's what's been going on over the last few years with this promotion. It's every progressive week, they lose a couple dozen more. Where they're just like, I can't do it. There's a voodoo doll that winks at the camera. There's a serial killer fiend who feeds people to alligators. There's a literal demon whose heartbeat is revived by his entrance music, but all of a sudden is powerless because he fell four feet to the floor from the top rope. 
I mean, you're never losing the mouth-breathing imbeciles who tweet crying face emoji tweets. You're never losing them. I mean, that's who this is for. They they, they eat this shit up. I, you know. You're not losing the children. I don't care if a kid is into this. I, I get it. If a children, if a child enjoys this. My children mock me when they come into the room and see this stuff. They all point and laugh. The TLB, the kids. Oh, he's watching wrestling again. Look at this guy. Why is he watching this shit? What a nerd. Let's go watch uh, Ryan's World on YouTube in the other room. A little bit of Peppa Pig. Something refined and dignified. Right? That's what I get in this house from these kids. But I get it if there's kids that enjoy this stuff. I understand it. Okay? Um, but just functioning adults that aren't mouth-breathing imbeciles, how can they enjoy this? I, I don't understand. And I think that's what's happening. They're just slowly losing more. And, you know, the, the consumer metrics would indicate that. And I know post-COVID, they've been up a little uh, in, in certain consumer. You know, SmackDown's doing okay. They're selling some tickets. But we'll see if it sustains. If they continue to pump out stuff like this. While there's an alternative that isn't pumping out stuff like this. Hey, it's real bad. WWE is real bad. We'll talk to you next week. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.